Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today remotely by Earl. Hello. This is the first episode we're recording since the coronavirus outbreak required uh, the studio at Whale to be shut down. So I want to apologize in advance for you know whatever poor audio quality this might have. Uh, we're, I'm just recording on my laptop microphone, which I'm sure doesn't sound as good as the microphones in studio. Uh, I guess to start off this episode, I... I'd just be curious, Earl, how has all of this impacted your work? My, my main client that I work for, they're, they're closed. So mm-hmm. I'm still sort of working on things for their site, kind of catching up on some of the backlog of work. But I'm not trying to go too overboard because I honestly don't know how long this thing is going to last. And I feel weird bill- like billing them right now, knowing that right. they're all like all their employees are furloughed. And, uh, you know, they, they started a little fundraiser, um, for their employees slash to raise money for a local food bank. So I know that they're, they're not in great shape. And, uh, so I honestly don't, I don't know long-term what's going to, what's going to happen with that. But, uh, so far I've been able to keep myself busy, I guess, working on some catching up on some old bug reports and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one thing that hasn't really gotten a lot of coverage necessarily throughout all this is like how this impacts, you know, the independent contractors, the freelancers who are, of course, like now more prevalent than ever within like the economy, that's more jobs than it ever has been. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the things uh, that occurred to me um, doing research for this episode in particular was, you know, I, I, for those people that haven't heard me on here before, I, you know, I'm an independent web contractor, web developer, uh, is that the, you know, with all these companies closed for the foreseeable future, the online ad sales market is just going to crumble, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's not like if companies are closed, they're not going to be buying ads online. And that's the very, that's like the fundamental, that's the, that's the foundational, uh, website. Yeah. That's like, yeah, exactly. That's everywhere. Including websites that like, which I'm sure we'll get to, uh, during this episode, but including news media outlets, like even if they have a subscription plan, they're still largely funded by ads. So even for people like me who can work remotely, um, I'm not sure what, you know, from a web developer standpoint, I, who knows how many of these companies are even going to exist if this thing goes on for, you know, another month or two, or, you know, I mean, I, most companies are already operating on sort of a hand to mouth basis just because I don't know, that's just the way that capitalism works. There's no, <laughs> you know, like the money right. comes in and it goes out. So there's it's no savings. Month. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now with the, if that's going to be the case, if the, if the bottom's going to come out of the internet's funding, basically, like who, who the hell knows what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess that's as good a place to, as any to like start our broader discussion of the various impacts uh, this outbreak is having on workers. You know, it's, it's having impacts on any number of industries and really we could not possibly cover it all in the span of an hour. But just since we've brought it up, uh, that seems like 
where we'll start this discussion. Um, I'm going to quote from a story in the New York Times headline, news media outlets have been ravaged by the pandemic. Pretty straightforward there. Mm-hmm. Um, quote, the news media business was shaky before the coronavirus started spreading across the country last month. Since then, the economic downturn that put nearly 17 million Americans out of work has led to pay cuts, layoffs, and shutdowns at many news outlets, including weeklies like Seven Days in Burlington, Vermont, and Gannett, the nation's largest newspaper chain. So that's like a good overview of the scale of the problem at hand. And obviously, journalism as an industry has it's faced like something like 10 times as many job losses over just since the, the year 2000 that like coal mining does and the loss of jobs in coal mining has been the source of like a lot of political focus, but very little attention comparatively has been given to the decline of journalism and especially local journalism. Just uh, for example, Gannett is like this big conglomerate that owns a whole bunch of papers, including the USA Today and here in Rochester, the Democrat and Chronicle. There was some story um, early in this, you know, in the shutdown phase of all of this that they were like furloughing workers who make, I think it was over $38,000 a year. The idea being that those workers would have the most money to like get by on this. And what some people found, at least one journalist found was that their contract was for like $38,060 a year. Oh, wow. I mean, no matter where you set the threshold, someone is going to be just above that threshold. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was found that a lot of people were just above that particular threshold. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Just that they're that suddenly their contracts get renegotiated and then they get a raise of 0.0004% a year or something, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, that's one of the, one of the things that, you know, came up uh, in that New York times article that you're talking about. There was basically a long, uh, you know, long list, basically recounting all the layoffs at various media outlets um, and pay cuts and et cetera. Uh, And one of the things that, struck out or stuck out to me amongst all of those was that pretty commonly executive pay was being cut by about 25% uh, in a lot of cases that seemed to be the sort of standard number. And a lot of CEOs were, were um, uh, you know, bypassing their salaries entirely during the pandemic. Right. Which I think mm-hmm. on its face, a lot of people would immediately say, Oh, that's very like generous of them to, you know, or they're, they're, they're looking out for their company and they're looking out for their employees. Um, mm-hmm. During this time of crisis, but when in reality, what it does, as this pandemic is done in lots of different ways, is it's exposing the fact that um, those people are over grossly overpaid in the first place. Uh, you know, and right. and the fact that they can buy, like the the fact that the CEO can say, uh, you know, oh, I'm just going to forego my salary for now, means that they've made so much in the past that they literally don't need the money that they're working for. You know, right. so the idea, so some of the things I'm hoping that comes out of this pandemic going forward is that people sort of, uh, and I think that that's happening from what I've seen on social mm-hmm. media and, and things like that, talking to my friends, that this is sort of exposing a lot of those, those things that were so like mundane and business as usual in capitalist society. Uh, and we just didn't need it all. Right. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. That we didn't just need it all. And that these people that are, you know, it's sort of like this, this, a broad awakening to like, well, if they can bypass their salary, it's because they're already wealthy. It's not because they're being philanthropic, you know, it's just, you know, and it's good. It's good PR for them or so it seems, but 
And there are a couple like um, aspects to this in journalism that especially like I think are fascinating, I guess, and I think are like part of a broader argument that we can make about capitalism in general. But the necessity of journalism hasn't changed. If anything, it is more important now in the middle of this crisis, which has all number of political and public health uh, implications than it has been ever before. You know, you need reporting to, you know, find out why there's, say, a shortage of ventilators or a shortage of masks or why one city wasn't prepared, but another was. And and there's no shortage of people going online to read the news. You know, that hasn't really changed. They're doing that in the same number, if not more than they were before, because they have more free time now. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and I think what the, the, the broader point here is that we're starting to realize what exactly is an essential part of our lives. And also um, the idea that these these things not only need to be done, but they can be done outside of like a, a for-profit system, right? Like right. The, the idea that, well, if Gannett fails, then there's not going to be any newspapers. And it's like, now people are in a position to sort of analyze that and say, well, no, if Gannett fails, if the business fails, the, the concept and, the, and the, um, the career of journalism does not disappear. People can mm-hmm. still report on things, and and it's important that they do, and it's important that they tell people like this is if you're this is locally where you can go to get emergency PPE, or this is where you can go to get emergency food, or whatever. Those things need to exist, and just mm-hmm. because the business aspect of it fails doesn't mean that that thing doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, people talk about capitalism in terms of the allocation of resources, right? And this is a a case I think of a misallocation of resources where precisely when, you know, an industry is needed most, it's losing revenue because, you know, nobody's buying ads. You know, there's a mismatch between, you know, what is needed and what capitalism is able to provide through the market incentives that, you know, everybody talks about. Right. Which is for, you know, proponents of capitalism is like the like reason that capitalism should exist. That's their argument against like Soviet style communism and things like that is like what a failure it was to allocate resources where they need, where they needed to go. And now we're in this position where capitalism is just failing miserably. Like all the things that leftists have been like critical of in the past, all the analyses that said this thing is a house of cards uh, and it can't, it's not sustainable, et cetera. And then we hit this, we hit this, road bump i mean i don't even want to call it a road bump that's like really underselling it but the, i mean the world the, the world effectively has stopped operating businesses stopped operating outside of essential like food food service and and, and healthcare and things like that and and capitalism just fell on its face it let it's letting the whole world down and they're still and people are still treating it like things are going to go back to normal it's really it's really interesting to watch if it wasn't also so heartbreaking simultaneously yeah um, and, and you're seeing in this uh, pandemic, this crisis, some companies are using it as an excuse to continue doing the sorts of cuts they were making previously. Um, just in this New York Times article, there are blurbs about what's going on at uh, The Maven, which is a company we've discussed before, and Geo Media. You know, these are the outlets that run uh, Sports Illustrated and uh, 
Deadspin, respectively. You know, they, both of these outlets are making cuts during this, but they were doing that beforehand. I, I mean, for like that sort of, you know, really insidious, like vulture style capitalism, this is a this is a perfect time to be that type of person to run a, t- a business that way because you can just get away with whatever you want in terms of like uh, yeah well obviously we have to cut pay because uh, you know the the pandemic that's all it's just like it's like hand waving it's like the same thing that happened with national security after 9-11 it's just do whatever you want and as long as you say national security nobody's gonna question you about it so those those types of ongoing cuts that are that are happening that that were happening before the pandemic and like you said ryan are continuing now um it's yeah i mean it's not surprising and it's awful the one one of the things that I'm concerned about, I know we talked about a little bit right before we went on the air was the long-term austerity measures, like inner business austerity measures where they're going to be claiming that they're still recovering from the pandemic to continue to suppress wages. And, you know, like long after the pandemic is over months, you know, months or years down the road, uh, it's going to be easy for like, imagine, you know, the airlines or something, if they still exist in six months being like, well, we've been recovering from the pandemic for five years. So everybody makes $10 an hour because that's all we can afford. You know? Right. What you're describing is like a privatized form of the shock doctrine, this idea that a crisis happens and it is used to justify measures that would normally be thought of as extreme. You see this um, historically in in Latin America, especially, uh, you know, some sort of crisis happens and, hey, look, the military wants in. Um, it's, and here you have companies that are using everything that's going on to put in place long-term plans, not just short-term plans that will really alter the way they operate. Yeah, and, and not to workers' benefit. Of oh, course. right. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the thing that for for people that are sort of a, of a left analysis, it's it's more important now than ever to present alternative like methodologies to dealing with this thing because as we know like capital's pretty well organized they've been doing this thing for this is just for them it's just cutting cutting uh you know cutting labor costs etc that's just like business business as usual and now they've got this almost like carte blanche to we can just do whatever we want we can cut all the uh, you know because pandemic or whatever so it's mm-hmm. really important for people that have any other sort of analysis or you know, like, in, okay, maybe instead of allowing these companies to go bankrupt and just laying off all their employees, whatever, maybe those companies become worker owned, you know, like those are things that we should be presenting as alternatives because otherwise they're just going to, it's just, they're just going to steamroll right through this thing uh, and, and try and go back to the way things were only it's going to be much worse for workers than it already was, which was not good to begin with. I, I think one of the uh, more galling stories to come from this uh, was what happened to the Cleveland Plain Dealer. It was mentioned in this New York Times article, but uh, to give an overview, the Plain Dealer is the daily newspaper in Cleveland. And what they've done is they have told all of the people who work at the newspaper that they're no longer covering the city of Cleveland. They're only going to cover the counties around Cleveland. And The reason they're doing this is because they have a website separately that covers Cleveland, but those employees are not unionized, whereas the newspapers are. Wow. That is some straight up dastardly business. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's just, and it's just so, that's the thing. It's like, it's so, like, they're so emboldened by what's going on now, like that they, they recognize people just don't have the capacity 
to challenge that type of stuff at this point. Like because of this, like sheltering at home, et cetera, it's made organization for people that would normally be striking uh, or, you know, raising hell on a picket line or something like that are stuck at home like everybody else. So Mm -hmm. they can just sort of push these policies through and they're getting very little, uh, you know, very little fight because there's just the, the normal ways of, of fighting stuff like that are, have been taken out from under us, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I think journalism is an example of one field where it's clearly essential, but nevertheless cuts are being made. And what you're seeing throughout the economy is that a whole lot of people who, um, aren't essential are obviously like sitting at home who are, they are, you know, unemployed because their business for whatever reason can't be open during this time. And so there's a very direct impact on those employees from all of this. Well, yeah. I mean, so the people that, the people that are like quote unquote non-essential, right? Like the Mm -hmm. people that have been, whatever, if you're in a, you know, retail is a perfect example. I mean, people that have been working in retail for years and I mean, like similarly to the media outlets, um, brick and mortar, retail places like jc penny and and whatever mm-hmm. uh have been you know contracting for years because of online for many reasons but mostly because of online sales and things like that so these these companies and that industry in general were already in a pretty precarious position uh and now people are just i mean it's hard to imagine what the labor force is going to look like coming out of this uh and with regards to you know who knows if if you know, Macy's or whatever, are even going to come out of this thing. Like they, if this goes on for long enough, they're just not going to, you know, uh, and without some, some sort of, I mean, I know in New York, they, they've done some work with, uh, you know, basically mortgage forgiveness, uh, et cetera, but no rent forgiveness, but not rent forgiveness. Right. Which is basically just, (laughs) it's just, it leaves a lot of people at like the good mercy of their landlord, which is never a position you want to be in. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, all it is, is it's just this, that, that policy that was passed that forgives mortgages and not rent just means that it's just a huge comeuppance for landlords, basically, basically like landlords, like, so now unemployment has in, in, uh, there's an additional $600 a week or whatever for, or a month, I can't remember for, for unemployment benefits. And, uh, and that, and that money is just, if is going to just get vacuumed up by landlords. Right, like if people can't work, but they also still have to pay their rent, it's that that unemployment extra unemployment money doesn't do any good. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe it affords you a few more groceries or whatever, but it's if it's just going to go up to your landlord, what's the well? You know, I I think what should be noted is that a lot of people are having trouble getting those unemployment benefits because in in many states, like the process for doing that has been purposefully made, you know. Uh, complicated. It's, you know, a Kafka-esque, you know, sort <laughs> right. of process where you need to go through X number of steps in order to prove that you are worthy of these unemployment checks. And in uh, Florida specifically, there was an article, I believe in Politico about how they had, you know, done this during the recession. They had made it harder to get unemployment so as to make their unemployment numbers look better. Wow. Yeah, yeah. it's... um. So you're seeing the impact of years of Republican and sometimes Democrat policies to yeah. cut the safety net right when we need the safety net most. And it's hard to um, 
build the safety net as you go along, which is kind of what we've had to do in the U.S. Um, in other countries where that safety net has been more stable, it's been less of a hassle to get benefits when they're handed out. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the thing is, uh, you know, you look at some of these numbers of of like reported cases uh, and and what the outbreak looks like in different countries. And people wonder why. I mean, not everyone. Some people have a very clear understanding of why it went down the way it did in the U.S. But mm-hmm. you look at a, a, a you know a country like Germany that has a pretty has strong a pretty strong uh, you know uh, social safety net. Um, those people were you know the people in Germany were able to just stop going to work and just they were able to like isolate so quickly and and maintain that isolation because they were prepared. They had a strong social system to support them. Mm-hmm. You know, in the U.S., I mean, that go, one of the things I, you know, one of the articles, and you know, we can get into this now if you if you want, uh, with regards to people working in, you know, the the essential fields in the in the U.S., people that are working in like meat, you know, meat packing in the Tyson Tyson plants, right? Uh, you know, there's been there's been deaths, there's been people that have died from uh, COVID nineteen related, yeah. you know, complications uh, that are working in these factories who their bosses told them they have to come back into work. You know, they're sick for two days and say, and, and they're making them come back into work and they're working, you know, to quote uh, one of the workers, they're working shoulder to shoulder with each other, you know, without mm-hmm. protective gear and, and this, and it's just no wonder the spread was, and the numbers are so huge in the U.S. There's no way for anyone to take any time off of work when they're sick and their job is threatened if they don't go in and people are just, they, their hands are tied. What are they going to do? You know? And it's no surprise that they can't get protective gear because like I I work in a nursing home and we've been told to reuse masks, which in like a hospital setting is forbidden because there are very more strict sanitary requirements, especially if you're going to be doing like surgery on somebody, you cannot reuse that because it's contaminated from the get go. It's a little, it's not necessarily as severe in a nursing home, but still, you know, there's a reason we're reusing them because we can't get enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which just goes back to our point uh, earlier of the, you know, the failure of capitalism to, you know, not, you know, not overproduce things because it's not cost effective for a company to do that. You know, it's not, if you're a producer of masks or ventilators or any of these things, or even if you're a hospital uh, you know, it's not profitable for a hospital to have entire wings on standby, basically, right. you know, and, and so there, and, and people wonder, you know, well, why, you know, how is this stretching our healthcare system so thin? And it's because it's run like a business, you know, all yeah. those people that the, the, the ridiculous concept of, I wish the government was run like a business. You do not want that. Uh, you know, you don't, because that's the opposite of what society is supposed to take care of people first. Like as a society, we're supposed to, you know, ideally, I don't know if, you know, supposed to is the right word, but ideally we would be taking care of each other and government should be an extension of society, not an extension of business. Because as we're seeing now, business is just not equipped to deal with social function. It's an a, it's an asocial, uh, you know, endeavor, basically. And, and just to, you know, the discussion of hospitals, there, there have been some reporting on um, how nurses and, you know, healthcare workers have been warned that, you know, they could lose their jobs for speaking out about the conditions they're facing and the ways in which those conditions are the product of cuts that have been going on for decades. Um, quoting from the New York Daily News, quote, 
On Friday, NYU Langone Health employees received a notice cautioning that anyone who spoke to the media without authorization could be subject to disciplinary action, including termination, Bloomberg News reported. There's this threat looming over their heads that, and, and it's not unique to this one facility in New York, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm sure. And they, and they, and just from that article also, they, um, one of the nurses, uh, Jonna Porter, I, uh, yeah, uh, was retroactively suspended for talking about things on social media. Like she, and, and, and it wasn't, they, they claimed of course that she was violating HIPAA, but she's, right. you know, she's a nurse. She's well aware of what HIPAA is and she wasn't violating those things. Uh, she was just whistleblowing basically and saying that they're under, they're underprepared with PPE uh, and that the hospital isn't doing, because at the end of the day, you know, hospitals are giant bureaucratic machines, right? Mm-hmm. They're run, they're run by for-profit companies. They're owned by capital. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it said in that article that the uh, um, HCA is owned by Bain Capital or, or <laughs> Bain Capital was one of the, the people that leveraged the buyout of that system. Bain Capital, famously the, the Mitt Romney uh, machine. Um, but yeah. I mean, even, even locally, uh, you know, I know for, for a fact that they're, that like strong hospital, for example, has, um, the, the triage nurses that are working on the phones, uh, that are just taking in, you know, people that are calling and are saying, I may or may not have COVID and et cetera. And they, they have them working in, in the cafeteria surrounded by, you know, and, and it's just instead, and that's, a, that's telephonic work. They could do that from home. There's no excuse yeah. for them to be there. And, and more explicitly, there's no excuse for them to be there working when they could be working from home, but they have them in the cafeteria, which is like the most populated area of the, it's like, so they're, they're, it's almost like they're putting people at risk on purpose. I can't understand why they would be doing that. And I'm sure that that's going on in various ways across the healthcare system, because again, they're capitalist enterprises and they don't care about their workers. Like that's pretty plain and simple. <laughs> yeah. Um, j- just sort of to get back to the idea of the misallocation of resources, there have been stories about how in hospitals, uh, particularly in areas like upstate New York, where, where the crisis hasn't been necessarily as bad as it is in New York City, where they are overloaded by cases where hospitals are having to lay off workers because the revenue is going down because nobody's going into like the emergency room. They're not going out. They're not getting into car accidents. They're, you know, they've canceled whatever procedures can be canceled because they want to clear out space for an influx of coronavirus patients that hasn't yet happened. And so the revenue just isn't there and they're cutting staff right in the middle of a pandemic, which seems like the time when you would want to be adding staff, if anything. Yeah. I mean, how much more, you can't hit the nail on the head any harder than that. Like how broken of a system we're working in when (laughs) hospitals are laying off people in the middle of a pandemic. Like what kind of sense does that make? If that doesn't expose how backwards, like the resource allocation is, uh, I just, I don't know what, I don't know what you can't, you couldn't write something like that. You know, you, that's not, that's like something that you read in fiction and go, oh, that's absurd. But that's the reality that we're dealing with. That's insane. Right. Um, and I believe there was some, at least talk in New York. I'm not sure to what extent this was actually uh, formalized and went through that um, Governor Cuomo would be sort of 
in effect, sort of nationalizing the hospitals for the um, duration of this crisis so that you could put, you know, workers from upstate hospitals that aren't necessarily being, you know, hit as hard and bring them downstate. You can give them jobs where they are needed. You know, it's, it's sort of people are recognizing the value of central planning instead of having all of these competing forces and firms. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's because that's the thing is like the, we're recognizing the fact that these, these things just need to get done in order to have a healthy society that's, that can make its way through this thing with, I, I would like to say with minimal casualties and stuff, but we're already seeing an insane number of people, cases and stuff. Uh, it's more important. That's, that's a, that's a, a sign of that. We're saying it's more important for people to be healthy than for your business to succeed or for you to maintain profitability, you know, like that's, that's not usually the way that it goes. So it's actually interesting to see that happening in these times when people are saying, well, look, man, nobody, nobody cares how your bottom line is right now. Like we need to, we need to take care, which is, I don't know. It's, it's refreshing. I just wish it wasn't, it wasn't coming. This wasn't the, the impetus for that. It didn't, it didn't take a pandemic to get here. Yeah. There's like a lot of uh, insurance companies and such have said that, treatment or testing for coronavirus will be covered for free for all patients. And that's partly because like, can you imagine the sort of public relations hit they'd take if people were coming out of this process with massive medical bills? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also, and again, like not to, I I don't want to make the the insurance companies seem like they're doing things benevolently, uh, but the PR their PR fight will be in a year when all premiums go up 20% across the board. Right. But yes. you know what I mean? Because again, they're, they're for-profit companies. They're not doing this. Like you said, it's PR, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're saying, okay, well now we can make ourselves look really good because everyone hates insurance companies because they're awful. Uh, and then in a year or two know. from now, when we, when we raise our rates, you know, I don't know if it's even a matter of them looking good. It's just a matter of them not looking like the most evil people on earth. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and especially in this uh, political moment where there has been discussion over the past few years about systems like Medicare for All, which would put these insurance companies out of business, you know, maybe if there wasn't that implied threat of Medicare for all looming over their heads and, you know, the idea of public support for that, which, you know, polls have suggested there was a lot of that, (laughs) you know, you wouldn't necessarily be seeing companies being so um, lax when it comes to demanding payment for services. But yeah, sorry. uh, Like you said, they are going to um, recoup next year because they haven't factored, uh, all these hospitalizations into their, you know, whatever formulas they have for this year. So they will next year in order to get back whatever money they might lose by not charging people for healthcare. Right. Yeah. And in the same, in the same way that I worried about, you know, intra-business austerity measures like of wage cuts and et cetera going on long after the pandemic, I am concerned of course, in the same way that, you know, uh, health insurance companies are going to raise their rates significantly and just keep them that way indefinitely because the pandemic, again, they're just going to be able to hand wave away and say, well, look, we're out of the pandemic now and we did this thing for you then and now you got to pay forever. 
there's a real chance that like next year, you know, if Joe Biden wins in November, he takes over and immediately is hit with, you know, a real crisis of people can't afford their premiums because they went up super high next year. And, you know, he is forced to handle a crisis of the system he has spent the past two years defending. Right. Yeah, exactly. As a, as a vocal opponent to Medicare for all, uh, Biden's going to be in a real in a real jam when that happens, because he's going to have to defend he's going to have to defend his position against Medicare for all when it's very clear uh, that it's the right option. Now, um, I'm going to sort of shift subjects here. Uh, apologies to the listeners. This may not be our most focused episode. We're kind of flying by the seat of our pants here. Yeah, a lot, um, lot to cover. <laughs> yeah, you, you brought up the poultry plant, uh, the poultry workers earlier. And I, I do want to read from that story because I do think that's worth talking about. Quoting from the New York Times uh Smithfield Foods Pork Plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, announced Thursday that it would close temporarily after more than 80 employees tested positive for coronavirus. Workers have come down with COVID-19 in several poultry plants in Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee. JBS USA, the world's largest meat processor, confirmed the death of one worker at a Colorado facility and shuttered a plant in Pennsylvania for two weeks. Cargill this week also closed a facility in Pennsylvania, where it produces steaks, ground beef, and ground pork. Tyson halted operations at a pork plant in Iowa after more than two dozen workers tested positive. So, like, the food industry is going to be hit particularly hard from all of this, it seems, just... I, I couldn't say why these workers are particularly vulnerable other than, you know, it seems that they're working in some close quarters. They're tightly packed in these plants. And even in the best of times, meat packing is a dangerous job. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we've talked in the past on punching out about at, at least one story involving a meat packing plant where, you know, injuries were rampant and safety was, uh, it might surprise you, not the highest priority. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's already an extremely hazardous, uh, you know, place to work in, like you said, for injuries sake, but also because, I mean, just think about all the, you know, you're dealing with your animals are being killed in that place. So there's yeah. blood and there's just, there's, it's just, you know, the, the risk for contamination from that type of stuff is already very high. Uh, and then also, yeah, these people are working shoulder to shoulder. And also so like in the, in the case of the, um, the woman who, who died, uh, working in the chick from COVID working the chicken. She was working in the, the packing area, which is cold. It's a freezer. Mm-hmm. So you're, are you're stressing your body constantly by working these long shifts, by working under in a freezer, you know, while sick, I just, uh, you know, I can't, I can't get my head around it. And then they have the nerve to tell people that they have to come into work, you know, they, and they, yeah. and they, again, they pull that, well, you're essential and you're feeding America and et cetera, et cetera. And they're, they're trying to play this patriotic card. And, and in one of the articles to paraphrase, the guy was just like, I'm not going back to work. He's like, it's not worth dying over chicken. That's basically what he's, you know what I mean? And that's, that's the long and short of it. It's like, if they're not willing to take care of you, uh, you have no responsibility to this business. You know, I mean, you can, you could, you could make some kind of argument that, that, uh, you know, you're part of a, a functioning society and that, you know, by providing food, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not, there's many other ways to go about that. And dying for Tyson Foods, I don't think is the way that many people want to be remembered. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no hero death uh, 
for Purdue, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the story notes uh, that that some plants workers have staged walkouts over these concerns um, and that this industry is one that is uh, disproportionately, you know, the workers in these industries are African-Americans, Latinos, immigrants, you know, the sorts of vulnerable populations that across the country are, you're seeing are experiencing higher death rates from uh, coronavirus. Right. And also, and so one of the responses that the, um, let's see, it was the Tyson plant in Camilla uh, offered its offered its workers a $500 bonus if they worked April, May, and June without missing a day. So, so they're incentivizing going to work when you're sick. Um, but, but also they're, instead of just saying, look, we know this is crazy and you're doing essential work. Here's a raise. Uh, here's a significant raise. Please come to work. If you're healthy, please stay home if you're sick so that you don't risk everyone that works here. And, and, and that's the other thing too, is you're not just risking the people that work there, but every single person that they're in contact with. So if mm-hmm. they go home and they have a family, like those people that those 80 confirmed cases, you know, when you look at that exponentially, the the and, amount of and people that's in South Dakota, which is, you know, right. not, yeah. not a very <laughs> yeah. popular yeah, state. Right. Not the most densely populated place on the planet. Uh, so if they're getting, you know, 80 people te- and that's 80 people that tested positive, like that doesn't mm-hmm. say that they tested everyone in the plant or that, you know what I mean? Or that there's asymptomatic mm-hmm. people and it's, yeah. And so, but there's, okay, well, if you show up, if you show up for the next three months without missing a day, we'll kick you 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. Like that's what, a, what, a, what, a, you know, that's so insulting. It's so insulting. And, and part of the issue is that in the U S we have no federal system of sick leave, you know, imp- uh, companies are not required to give out sick leave. Uh, some states have taken it upon themselves to uh, mandate that, you know, you get a certain amount of sick leave if you do test positive, but, you know, God help you if you have just like the flu. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, so that seems like a good segue to start to, to talk about Instacart a little bit, uh, because I know that they have an internal policy in in the company. Um uh, sorry, what's up? Uh, but before we get to that, there's a sort of a story from my own workplace, which is that they posted these like sheets in the break room, and it's an HR email, basically. And I can, and I know this is, I know it's like something from like a human resources group because, like, it starts with first the good news: you do not have to give sick leave beyond the coronavirus crisis, which like. Thanks for posting that in the break room. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yes, we, we can move on to um, Instacart, which is both seeing, you know, more uh, customers because people are more hesitant to go to the grocery stores themselves, but not giving their workers any better pay for that surge in income. Right. Yeah. Well, also the the reason I brought up really was specifically related to the the um, you know paid sick leave is because they they do allegedly have a policy uh, where you can take two weeks you can get two weeks paid sick leave with Instacart, uh, but they've been denying people even when they have a doctor's note, basically like saying that it has to co- like they're using some funny language like uh you know it has to come from a health agency, which is like. It's a, it's a doctor. I don't know. A doctor's note is, and that, and that's, they're making Uber uh, and 
and DoorDash look good somehow uh, because they they accept doctor's notes. You can just put a doctor's <laughs> note in and get your paid. But so that's that's saying something that you're making Uber look look good that it's taking care of its workers. That Instacart is just like no. I mean, I know you have a doctor's note, but we're still not going to give you the paid sick leave. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's caused it's caused some Instacart workers to strike and to remain on strike, as far as I know, uh, as of March 30th. Um, had people walking off their initial, their initial um, demand was just for basic, uh, you know, personal protective gear and, and sanitation, uh, you, you know, hand sanitizer uh, and to which Instacart, you know, basically <laughs> said, okay, immediately. Uh, and then made it available, I guess, through the app to order for yourself, but then of course, couldn't fulfill those orders. And just to continue raining uh, my uh, hatred down on Instacart, um, <laughs> When a, a long, you know, a woman who had been employed at Instacart for a couple of years posted about that, um, they they revoked her contract, uh, basically saying that her application for employment had been denied when she'd already been working there for two years. So insane. Mm-hmm. We, we've we've talked uh, not not that not all that long ago on the show about like Instacart and these delivery apps and the ways in which they're already like using the algorithm to squeeze their workers as much as they can, or they'll do things like not make it clear that your tip is actually going to the company instead of the workers. Um, but yeah, during this crisis, which has you know been a boon for the business, I think the fact that there hasn't been sort of an equivalent increase in the way their workers are treated is another case of misallocation. You know, it's more money for like some Silicon Valley guy who hasn't actually done anything different through all of this. Right. Yeah, exactly. They, they're seeing this explosive growth and instead of just providing for their employees, uh, who are the ones that are generating all the money in the first place by actually going out and doing the work? They're just, I don't know. They're just, I mean, they're just hoarding it. That's all it is. They're just hoarding the wealth that that people are generating during a crisis, uh, right. which is just, yeah, it's it's gross. I, I, w- I want to quote from a story in the Los Angeles Times about this quote. In essence, Instacart is getting shoppers to do more jobs and passing all or most of the extra labor costs onto customers in the form of tips. And tips aren't guaranteed. With delivery slots at a premium, some customers have resorted to a practice known as tip baiting, entering a large tip to secure an order, then withdrawing it after delivery, which seems like the worst thing imaginable for a person to do. But also, why is this even allowed? Right. Yeah. Why, why is, why is Instacart allowing tips to be edited for up to three days after, after the fact, uh, is beyond, is beyond me. As soon as that delivery is over, uh, or, or as soon as that delivery person has left the store, as far as I'm concerned, that that tip should be locked in, or maybe even before that, I'm not totally sure. Um, but yeah, but also more importantly, why is Instacart forcing its customers to pay its employees? That's like what it comes yeah. down to, right? Like they're they're not paying their employees; they're making their customers pay the employees directly. Um, and the yeah, the tip baiting thing is truly awful. Uh, yeah, I just I can't imagine doing that to somebody. That's really awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, another company that has seen some workers go on strike during this is uh, the Target version of Instacart, basically, which is called uh, Shipped. S-H-I-P-T. We talked about this um, 
a couple months ago at this point, but um, I, I just like saying the name of that company and reminding our listeners that they're still bad. They are <laughs> yeah. Still bad. Still bad. Yeah. 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 I just, I mean, it, it does come down to what you, you know, the point you've made throughout the episode about the allocation of resources, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a pandemic. This is a global crisis that of, of like proportions that we haven't seen before and the money is not going where it needs to go. You know, the people that are putting themselves at risk, people that are working in the, in, in the food plants, people that are going to the grocery store, which is incredibly stressful. I mean, when they were in, in those articles about Instacart, when they were sort of talking about what that's like, I mean, they're all those lines that you see at the grocery store that, that that's what they're doing. They're going and they're mm-hmm. standing in the line for a half an hour at the deli. And then they're I've, standing in, in line for an hour to pay, you know, like, I've had multiple family members basically have panic attacks at Wegmans over the past week, just because, you know, the crowds are wild there. Yeah. Yeah. That's I've, I've heard that it's just, you know, no one's respecting. I mean, Wegmans uh, has done from what I understand, a pretty good job of putting down, you know, trying to demarcate what a six foot space looks like. Uh, and, and, you know, they're, they're doing what they can, but, but, but even just, they like only, I think it was like last week said, okay, our workers can wear gloves now if they choose to, which just wild. Yeah. That's yeah. It's just, again, I don't understand. There's plenty of, and it, yeah, it's not like you're asking, you know, they don't have to wear hazmat suits, just buy them gloves and, and, and masks. You know, it's not like these things are, you know, I, I just can't believe the, I don't know how, how blase a lot of companies and people in general are being about this thing. It's been very, it's been very illuminating. I, I do have uh, one last story that I want to get to on this episode. Um, I guess a running theme over the past 45 minutes or so has been this idea that the people who are doing the most valuable work in society, the work that absolutely has to be done, even in these conditions are not being valued. You know, there's, we, we do not have, um, a system that adequately values people, you know, for what they do effectively, you know, it's, it will not surprise you to learn that we don't think, uh, you know, America is a meritocracy or capitalism is a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's the story in NPR headline, White House seeks to lower farm worker pay to help the agriculture industry, which is just infuriating. Um, Quote, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is working with Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue to see how to reduce wage rates for foreign guest workers on American farms in order to help U.S. farmers struggling during the coronavirus, according to officials and sources familiar with the plans. So here you have people doing the absolutely essential work of like picking our crops. And the, the solution we have during this crisis is to pay them less. Right, right. One of the few things that people are actively spending their money on, which is food, because everything else is closed. Uh, and, and what, you're telling me there's not enough money to pay people who are absolutely foundational to our entire, not just economy, but the existence of humanity, that we can't, not only can we not pay them more, that we have to pay them less? Like, what? Right. The hell is that? And that's the and in that article when they they refer because they what they say they said to help they want to cut reduce wages for foreign guest workers to help struggling U.S. farmers, right? They're not. It's not struggling U.S. farmers. It's the owners of the farms. 
it's and at this point, I mean, I think a lot of people still had this idea of farming in the United States being like, you know, they think of the Dust Bowl or something, and like mom, you know, like families out there farming, and it's it's agribusiness. It's a lot of the, most of the, the the food that's produced in the United States is produced by large agricultural companies that have lots of employees and are trying to cut costs wherever they can. Uh, so the idea that the agriculture industry is struggling uh, is insane. Uh, maybe the owners aren't making as much money as they were before, but to, to, to look at to look at grocery stores now and say that the agriculture business is struggling is like lunacy. Uh, like, the sort of wild thing about this is they've managed to um, annoy both like immigrant rights activists who say, okay, you can't pay these people less than they're already making, which is a pittance really. But also like the sorts of people who are deeply against immigration because they feel that this will make it more attractive for companies to use foreign labor. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that, that's how you can uh, for sure be, you know, can guarantee that this is a terrible policy idea is when you're getting people of such strange bedfellows to Mm -hmm. like align against you uh, that it's just an awful, and I can't, I just can't imagine even suggesting something like that. Like I, I, you know, the, and the fact that it's coming from the white house, I mean, I guess that shouldn't be at this point, nothing coming from the white house should surprise us, honestly. But even that is like, even (laughs) that might just be too absurd, even for this administration. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And, you know, it should be noted that, of course, a lot of the people who are doing these sorts of jobs are undocumented. And you have this weird sort of, you know, seeming contradiction between the fact that they are treated as essential. They are essential workers. Obviously, none of us are going to disagree with that label. And yet they are second class citizens. Well, not citizens it, because of their, you know, legal status, which it, it's ridiculous. We, Nobody wants to acknowledge the ways in which our economy is built upon the backs of these people and their labor and the labor that they're doing without masks or gloves. Right. Yeah. And not, and, and, and that's, and that's in the context of the, the pandemic, which is already stacked on top of the fact that farm work is like top five hardest work that there is to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, and also, and not only is it incredibly difficult when you're at work, but a lot of these, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, immigrant uh, uh, populations that are working on farms are living on the farms in basically like, you know, trailers and in really cramped conditions that is going to exacerbate uh, any kind of COVID outbreaks on farms, etc. cetera. Uh, so not only is their work generally very difficult and their living conditions bad and their pay bad, uh, but now they're going to, you know, the, the chance of outbreak is higher because of those exact same living conditions. Um, you, you asked how is it possible that farmer, that these, you know, farm businesses are struggling in the midst of, you know, a situation where grocery stores, you know, can't keep bread stocked. And there's, there's an explanation for that. Um, quote, there's a story in the New York Times uh, published on Saturday, uh, headline, Dumped milk, smashed eggs, plowed vegetables, food waste of the pandemic. Quote, in Wisconsin and Ohio, farmers are dumping thousands of gallons of fresh milk into lagoons and manure pits. An Idaho farmer has dug huge 
ditches to bury 1 million pounds of onions. And in South Florida, a region that supplies much of the eastern half of the U.S. with produce, tractors are crisscrossing bean and cabbage fields, plowing perfectly ripe vegetables back into the soil. After weeks of concern about shortages in grocery stores and mad, mad scrambles to find the latest box of last box of pasta or toilet paper roll, many of the nation's largest farms are struggling with, you know, the fact that they have to destroy all this food because they can't sell it to restaurants or hotels or schools. Yeah. I, I, I can't, I don't think I'm, I, I've been more mad about anything recently than seeing that. I mean, and that's, that's stuff that goes on all the time and it's, but it's because they're protecting prices. Basically mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's very basic uh, capitalist economics. They're saying, well, if we want the prices, they're basically trying to prevent, what's happening with oil currently to happening to their food, their prices of milk and whatever produce by keeping the, the supply lower uh, you know, they're trying to keep their prices up. And that's just, again, like this is stuff that goes on all the time. And people on the left have had the analysis of that. This is insane uh, for a long time, but now because we're in this context of the pandemic, it should be clear to anyone uh, who may have been, even if they're just, you know, they don't have any analysis. They're just used to capitalism or whatever. They don't have any concern with it. They're not for or against it, really, whatever, that it's insane. Uh, people are out there destroying food in a pandemic when people are struggling and don't can't go to work to protect pr- prices. It's just, it's, you know. And you've always just- had these sorts of mismatches in our economy. You know, we have more empty homes than we do homeless people because, you know, the price of a home is, you know, based on what the market will allow and the market and that price is too high for a lot of people who have to be homeless as a result. But you have, it's really stark to see just how clear it is that profit in this case is more important than making sure people have food to put on the table. Um, at the same time as you're having just massive lines and like parking lots for uh, food banks when they're open, you have you know massive amounts of food waste deliberately, not right. not by accident, but like by design. Yeah, because they can't sell it at a rate that will make them profit. Right, they can't, and you know it. Somehow the logic is that it is better to destroy the food than to give it away. Right, which is just, I mean, that's that's just so wrong on its face, you know. Like, I, I'm not really a, a proponent of the concept of like good and evil, but that's like as close to an objectively evil thing to do as I could think of, you know. Like, just the idea of, I mean, so I used to work at a at a a bagel shop years ago, and our policy at the end of the night was, you know, you'd bag up some of the bagels to sell as day old bagels the next day, but the rest of them had to be thrown away. And when I first started working there, like my day one, I was like, well, why don't you just let me take these to, you know, a shelter or something where they could use them. And it was, it was against company policy to do that. It was, uh, you know, so you see this type of mentality across the board, not just on large scale farming and stuff, but in everyday, uh, you know, smaller, smaller instances like that, where it's like, they would rather throw things away than give them away. And I just can't, it's hard for me to reconcile that. I, I work in a kitchen, you know, I, you know, it's in a, it's a mass kitchen, you know, so I'm the one at the end of the shift who has to take the garbage out. And I know that there's a lot of perfectly good food in that garbage. And there are people in this community who can't get perfectly good food. It's, it's, 
it's frustrating to yes. say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now we we've talked about like people struggling to get food and the demand for people to um, like for just the basic necessities of grocery shopping or whatever it is people need during this time. And I, I do want to note some, some of the work that you've been doing in, in the past like volunteer work um, with the uh, Rochester mutual aid network. I, I don't know if you want to talk about that at all and what you've been doing. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of, a lot of local organizations that have really sprung up uh, in response to this, uh, to the crisis. Um, trying to fill those gaps where capitalism is failing. Uh, and one of the projects, like uh, you mentioned, is is the Rochester Mutual Aid Network, which is something I'm happy to, uh, proud to be a part of. Um, and basically, we're just, tra- we're just trying to help people meet their needs. So whatever that happens to be, um, if it's food or, uh, you know, we've had people looking for supplies for, uh, you know, their kids' diapers and, and formula and things like that. Uh, we're just basically, we have a pretty, we just started recently, um, but we already have a pretty large collection of volunteers. Um, and that's, uh, we're just trying to be there for the community, um, basically. Mm -hmm. So any requests that you have, if you want to, you know, look, look for us online, um, we're not hard to find, uh, and Mm -hmm. we'll do our best to help. Yeah. Um, I, I want to thank you for being available on Easter to record this. Um, you know, th- it's not like we have anything better to do during this time. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm happy we can get this together. I, I feel, uh, I'm glad that we can do punching out remotely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just on a, on a broader note, I, I'm pleasantly surprised by how smooth this smoothly this has gone. Um, I hope it sounds good. It might not, it might sound terrible. I might just have to delete it, but. <laughs> hopefully you're, you know, you out there are listening to this and hopefully we're able to do this more regularly than we have been over the past few weeks as we've tried to adjust our recording schedule to the uh, new realities of this crisis. But uh, for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Earl. I hope you guys are all hanging in there. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>